0: Hi, hello, Physionic Podcast. This is the, I think, I guess, third dedicated episode that I've made for you guys. It's been, uh, it's been fun. So I'm, I'm really, really glad about that because um, I was afraid that it might be an added burden, but uh, I think, I think the fact that I don't have to concentrate on the visuals as well as making sure that I'm saying things that are uh, where you don't need to be looking at the visuals at the same time it was just it was like two different brains trying to work at the same time while anal- while trying to make sure that I was explaining the the information the data as, as clearly as possible but uh, I wanted to cover a new study that actually just came out a few months ago although it was published this year Uh, called Dietary Palmitate and Oleate Differently Modulate Insulin Sensitivity in Human Skeletal Muscle. And this is going to be unique from the other two podcasts that I released because the other two podcasts were in uh, muscle models. So looking at rat muscle cells and looking at the effect that a human gene as well as the effect that unsaturated fats had on these muscle cells. And while that's Clearly we can't take information from that and say, oh, well then this necessarily applies to my life. Um, I think what it's probably more telling of is being more mechanistic in nature. It tells us more on the mechanisms and even then we would need to verify that in human cells. Uh, So actually I was thinking about this over the last couple days. I was thinking, you know, I probably should have started with uh, human cells, at the very least human cells, if not then go to uh, humans in general and then go to human cells, then maybe go to the rat cells where you can do a little bit more experimentation, so in hindsight, you know, I'll, I'll do better in the uh, next time. But, uh, still, that doesn't mean that the results that we saw in the first two papers didn't exist or weren't true for humans. And I had this paper on the docket anyway, so I'm just gonna keep moving forward and then I'm probably gonna cover some some human cell studies as well. But this one is going to be looking at not, I see the title says human skeletal muscle. This is actually in humans. So this is a trial in people. So we're gonna see the effect that a diet that's, or not maybe not a diet, but a meal that's high in saturated fat and tends to be relatively lower in unsaturated fat, and a meal that is high in unsaturated fat and relatively low or quite low in saturated fat, how both of those affect insulin sensitivity. And this is a, a, a really well done study. There are a few things that I wish they would have added, but overall the study was really well done. So let me go ahead and uh, walk you through it and kind of explain what they found and what we can actually take away. So remember the, the last few papers, there, you know, a lot of speculation, but uh, this one we can definitely take some information away. So I'm really excited to present this to you. Okay, so the first thing was that they had, let me talk to you about the participants. They had 16 participants that were involved in the study. They had 10 men and 6 women, and it was a crossover design, meaning that uh, each participant underwent each one of the three conditions. So the three conditions were uh, what's known as VCL, SAF, and PAL, or PAL, yeah, P-A-L. So VCL was just water, so it's the control condition. The participants aren't Taking in anything uh, other than water. The second one is saff, which is safflower oil, and that is a composition of 8% saturated fat, 65% monounsaturated fat, and 23% polyunsaturated fat. And if you do the math on that, that actually does not add up to 100%, which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I looked it up and it's completely made out of fat. So that that aspect doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but the the big takeaway uh, is that it is really low in saturated fat and very high in unsaturated fat. That's the big point. That's over 90 percent saturated or unsaturated fat. Excuse me. Now, on the other hand, palm oil is the other condition for PAL and that was 48% saturated fat, so almost half of the fat is saturated fat, and 35% monounsaturated fat, 15% uh, polyunsaturated fat. Again, didn't add up to 100%, got really close, and I don't know what, they're, what they think is the last few percent, but again, looked it up, and it's, it's all fat, so I, I don't know what to say. Uh, but again, the big takeaway is that you relatively have much, much higher saturated fat, five five times as much. Um, And you have much lower unsaturated fat, not quite as low as by comparison to the safflower oil. Uh, The amount of saturated fat for that is really low. I wish that they'd uh, been able to find or maybe create some sort of uh, oil that would have been really low in unsaturated fat. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers it's okay. Ultimately, it's still a big difference between the two oils. I'm going to refer to them just for for clarity's sake as the the high saturated fat condition for the palm oil, which is 48% saturated fat, and the high unsaturated fat condition for the safflower oil, which is the oil with 90% unsaturated fat. And The way they did this is those were the three conditions. The individuals were between ages 20 and 40, so relatively young. I think the mean, the average, was like 25. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was around there. So ultimately, young to middle-aged individuals, and all these individuals were normal weight, as measured by BMI, 20 to 25. I realize people have problems with BMI, but ultimately when you're talking about the standard population, BMI is perfectly fine for most individuals. Just because it doesn't apply to you, it certainly doesn't apply to me, Uh, it's still accurate enough and it's super easy to use. Uh, Even if you're going to have exceptions in the standard population, you're going to have so many exceptions you can't use it when you're talking about a specialized population like athletes. And they were also otherwise healthy. No metabolic conditions. And it wasn't even just like a questionnaire. They actually tested these individuals, like tested their uh, insulin sensitivity and stuff before they were allowed into the, to the study. So they did a great job. I, I thought this was, this was really well done um, up to this point. And it's no surprise. I mean, this is actually published in, uh, it's always going to be hard for me to say, Diabetologia. <laughs> it's it's like diabetes with oligia at the end. And uh, I, I looked up the, I've read other papers from that, that journal, and it's a really high impact factor. It's like 10 or something like that. It's really high, um, really fantastic journal. So I'm not surprised that they ended up publishing this. So anyway, so those are the conditions. And then what they did is they had these individuals come in And they had a basal state or pre-basal state, I should say, where they hadn't consumed each one of their respective conditions, you know, the oil or the water. And they took muscle biopsy. So they took a biopsy from the muscle. They're just taking a little bit of tissue, maybe 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams. And then they freeze that so that they can test it later. And this is where we're going to get not only information, because this is going to tell us about insulin sensitivity, as a whole for the body with these these fats, high saturated fat or high unsaturated fat, but it's also gonna tell us uh, the molecular mechanisms. And this is where things get super interesting. So I'm, I'm really excited to show that, or to speak to you about that. Now, the other thing that they do is they do uh, indirect calorimetry during this pre-basal period. So before, again, they've consumed each one of the conditions. And this is just to measure the amount of calories, so their metabolism in general. And then, they consume each one of their respective, quote unquote, meals. So the water, the high saturated fat, or the high uh, unsaturated fat. And this begins what's called, known as the basal period. So after consumption, that's the basal period, for several hours. And then they take a series of mu- more muscle biopsies, they do some more indirect calorimetry, and then around the six hour mark, they end up doing a clamp. So what a clamp is where the researchers infuse insulin and blood sugar, or they add sugar to the blood. And this is where they're going to be making their measures of insulin sensitivity. Now, during this entire time, they're also infusing the entire time from right from the beginning, the pre-basal period, through the basal period, through the clamp period, they're also infusing a small amount of trace glucose, What is trace glucose? It is a tagged glucose, a tagged sugar molecule that can then be tracked throughout the bloodstream and can integrate into... Uh, different compartments of the cells. And then you can track that and see, well, okay, well, where is that, that glucose going? What's happening to that glucose? And the reason why it has to be tagged is because you want to differentiate it from the other glucose, the regular glucose that the body's producing, the stuff that they're, they're uh, infusing themselves, um, the glucose that's already there, you have to be able to differentiate it, so you have to add a chemical tag to it. And that's what they do, it's just to be able to see, and we're gonna look at some of that data as well. All right, so this runs for you know seven, eight hours, something like that, this entire uh, experiment. And it tells us at varying points how these fats are gonna affect insulin sensitivity. Okay, so the first thing that I really wanted to touch on, which is something I touched on in the, uh, the video uh, version, was to look at particular hormones or proteins uh, that were specific to hunger and to insulin secretion. These aren't necessarily uh, huge factors into the insulin sensitivity discussion, but I want to throw it in there because I find it interesting, and maybe you do too. So the first protein, the hormone that they, both both of these are secreted by the gastrointestinal tract. Um, So intestines, stomach, et cetera, et cetera. And that, they looked at the these two hormones, one of them being a glucagon-like peptide and the other one being gastric inhibitory peptide. And both of these have actions on similar tissues but they have actions on wide-ranging tissues. The two that I'm going to be focused on is the pancreas where insulin is secreted and the brain where it controls for hunger. So what they found is that with the High unsaturated fat condition, there was an increase. Both conditions increased the amount of GIP, so gastric inhibitory peptide, and both of them also increased the glucagon like peptide. However, the high unsaturated fat had a higher increase, a greater increase in the levels of both of these hormones that were enda- ended up being secreted. And since both of these have an effect on insulin secretion, they increase insulin secretion or prime the cells for insulin secretion in the pancreas. They also decrease hunger, so they reduce hunger. That said, however, when you look at the insulin levels, there was no change in insulin, sen- or insulin secretion. Now, why might that be? Well, it might be because, and I think this is likely the reason that they didn't pair this with other foods like carbohydrates, for example, and therefore they didn't see a, a noticeable increase in insulin secretion. But if they had paired it with insul- with carbohydrates, excuse me, they likely would have seen not only an increase in insulin, but they would have seen an additional increase in insulin because of these hormones being released. Of course, they didn't measure hunger either, uh, but you know, if this turned out to be true, then it's possible that an unsaturated fat diet might uh, dampen hunger a little bit more than a saturated fat diet. But that is my speculation only. They have no data to, to back that up. All right, so now let's look at the insulin sensitivity. So insulin sensitivity at basal levels. So this is before the researchers have infused uh, insulin, before they've infused sugar but they still have this trace amount of glucose that's going on, and that's how they're able to get some of this information. So glucose disposal, that's what they're looking at, that's the metric that they're looking at. So what, what does that mean? That means that the, the sugar that's in the bloodstream, how much of it is being removed from the bloodstream and put into the cells. And what they found is that glucose disposal was only decreased in the saturated fat condition that was at basal levels. Now, at basal levels, they also looked at the liver and they wanted to look at the amount of gluconeogenesis or the amount of production of sugar by the liver. And they found that there was greater gluconeogenesis with the saturated fat condition. Now, what does that mean? Why do we care? The reason why we care is that it could be a proxy for insulin insensitivity on both fronts, one, that you have less glucose entering the cells. That is a marker of, it's not, I don't think it's a definitive marker, but it is a marker of insulin insensitivity, otherwise said as insulin resistance. And the fact that insulin stops gluconeogenesis or inhibits gluconeogenesis, and here we're looking at a less of an inhibition of gluconeogenesis on the liver. So there's two different pieces of data here indicating that in a basal state that saturated fats uh, inhibit insulin sensitivity. That said, then they look at the clamp. So when the researchers add the insulin as well as the glucose, and you might be wondering why they add the glucose as well, uh, mainly because you can't add insulin without adding glucose. Uh, The reason being that if you add insulin without glucose, you die. Uh, because that means that suddenly your your system is flooded with insulin and insulin will bind all the cells and all the glucose that's in your bloodstream will just get sucked out of your bloodstream and go into your cells. And your cells might be happy, but once they run out of that glucose in quick order, they, they look for more glucose in the bloodstream and there's nothing there and then you die. Uh, you go in a coma first and then you die. So not at all good. Uh, so of course they have to control both they have to add sugar to make sure that doesn't happen but they also use insulin so in that situation with with the clamp they f- they saw that there was a decrease in, in in glucose disposal so same measure glucose disposal from the bloodstream into the cells in both conditions so unsaturated fat and saturated fat conditions. However, there was a greater effect in the saturated fat condition. So it's possible that there's, and this is this is my speculation, it's possible that with the addition of the added glucose plus the insulin plus the unsaturated fat that may be still lingering around at that point, that that adds too much Nutrient or too much availability, too much substrate in general, and that leads to insulin insensitivity. Because we do know that if you consume carbohydrate, if you repeatedly consume or over consume carbohydrates plus uh, any fat, really, just anything. If you just overconsume in general, your insulin sensitivity decreases. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily you know one meal. If you decide to have one meal with fat and carbohydrates, that your insulin sensitivity is shot, and you're continuously killing it. Um, although, frankly, it probably does decrease it in the temporary time period. Uh, but in this situation, they're finding that with that the although both fats decrease insulin or glucose disposal, excuse me, that the saturated fat still had a more pronounced effect than the unsaturated fat. So saturated fat was worse in insulin or glucose disposal. I keep saying insulin. Now on measures of the, again, going back to the liver and looking at suppression of gluconeogenesis, so the opposite of what we were kind of looking at before. Before we were looking at what's the amount of sugar being produced by the liver, now we're looking at the suppression of, of that production of glucose. And you, So you would expect an inverse uh, situation. So before we saw that gluconeogenesis was suppressed the most with, or you had the less, least amount of gluconeogenesis with the control Now you would expect that there's the greatest amount of suppression with the control. And that's exactly what we find by comparison to both of the other diets or both of the other fats, fat conditions, I suppose I should say. It's kind of hard to say it's a diet when they're just consuming a liquid oil. Um, So the unsaturated fat also had reductions in its suppression of gluconeogenesis, indicating some insulin insensitivity there. And again, saturated fat had an even greater effect. So saturated fat is definitely a, a no-go on that front. Now, the final measure I wanted to discuss is glucose oxidation, so the use of glucose overall uh, for utilization, burning glucose, burning uh, blood sugar. And both of those were dampened with the, in the clamp uh, with both fats equally so they were both reduced so they were you know whatever sugar they were taking up or even you know they were taking up less sugar and on top of that they were burning less sugar uh, than than uh, the control. Okay so God, let me go ahead and give you kind of a takeaway from this and it's I'm going to remove my speculation out for the time being because I don't want to necessarily bias the overall takeaway. The overall takeaway is that what we can be sure of is that glucose disposal is hampered decreased by fat consumption point stop however there's an additional negative effect on glucose disposal from from a high saturated fat meal or exposure so that's kind of the big takeaway and now to figure out why there is that difference. I wanna look at some molecular mechanisms. So I'm gonna explain this to you. I'm gonna explain what normally happens, and then we're gonna walk through each one of these molecular mechanisms and explain why unsaturated fat may have had an effect on, may have dampened insulin sensitivity. But, un, but saturated fat had an even greater effect on insulin sensitivity, uh, reducing it even more. Okay, so typically what happens? Let's just remove the fats we're just talking about, just straight up, what happens, how does insulin work, et cetera, et cetera. So insulin is in the bloodstream. It gets released from the pancreas, and it will then, as a molecule, will bind to the outside of the muscle cell. The outside of the muscle cell has a receptor, and that insulin will bind to the insulin receptor. The insulin receptor will then change its shape slightly, and when it changes its shape, it has a section of that receptor that goes through the membrane and goes to the inside of the muscle cell, okay? So, you have the head of the receptor is outside of the muscle cell, then you have kind of the body, which is going through the cell membrane, and then which separates the cell membrane, separates the outside of the cell from the inside of the cell. And then you have this tail uh, in, that's inside the cell. And because the overall shape of the insulin receptor changes, the shape of the tail also changes. That shape change leads to a bunch of molecular events that I won't go into. And then from there, you have a protein known as IRS, insulin receptor substrate, that will bind to the tail of the insulin receptor, which is inside the cell. This then leads IRS to be phosphorylated, meaning that is a tag that is added to IRS. And if it is an activation tag, what it will do then is activate a series of other molecular mechanisms, so other molecules, other proteins will be activated, and then those will eventually lead to an activation tag added to a protein known as AKT. When AKT is activated by that tag, by that phosphorylation event, then AKT will activate or allow more blood sugar into the cell. I'm skipping a few steps here, probably skipping a lot of steps to be honest, but this is a good measure. So if AKT activity is increased, then you have more blood sugar being taken out of the bloodstream and put into the cells, which is a good thing. That is how you have highly sensitive insulin sensitivity. So you're sensitive to insulin, great. Now, that said, we're gonna be looking at each one of these mechanisms. There are other proteins that get involved here that I'll explain to you, but the overall mechanism is that insulin binds to the insulin receptor. Insulin receptor changes its shape. IRS binds, IRS is activated. IRS then activates other proteins. Those other proteins activate AKT. AKT is activated and then therefore allows more blood sugar into the cells. Good. Now, what happens? You know what, let me go ahead and open up. Instead of looking at my notes, which are quite small, I'm gonna look at my presentation that I have here. Okay, so the first thing. The fats come into the muscle cell, and here, in the muscle cell, those fats can be adapted, changed, things can happen to those fats to change their shape or their function. So the fats enter the muscle cell, and then here, they are then converted to in this situation to DAG. What is DAG? DAG is known as diacylglycerol. Diacylglycerol is a changed fat and if it moves in particular parts of the cell then it can become more active or less active just by the location of where it is. So if it moves to the membrane of the cell it tends to be more active more primed for activation. So DAG is found in what they do, they measure the amount of DAG that's on the membrane of the cell, so on the inside section of the, the muscle cell, and they find that both fats increase the amount of DAG that was found on the membrane of the cell. So unsaturated and saturated heavy oils increased DAG to the membrane. So that, what does that do? Well, what DAG does is it will activate a protein known as PKC, protein kinase C. Protein kinase C comes in different versions, different what are known as isoforms. You have lambda, you have theta, you have epsilon, and two of these, two of these PKCs, uh, I believe it was epsilon and theta, are being measured in this situation by the the researchers. So this PKC will go to other molecules like IRS and will phosphorylate or tag IRS. However, they are not tagging IRS in a go, be activated. They are tagging IRS in a stop, you are inhibited from moving forward. Think of it like handcuffs. Their IRS is then handcuffed Even though insulin is bound to the insulin receptor, IRS can move there, but if it's tagged or handcuffed, it can't propagate that signal to the other molecules that I mentioned earlier. So PKC, what do they find? They find that for PKC theta, no, epsilon, excuse me, PKC epsilon, there was an increase only in the saturated fat condition. However, the PKC theta, they found an increase in both fats. So both fats increase the amount of PKC theta. So this already starts to give us an indication of the difference between these two fats. One fat will activate both of the PKCs, saturated fats, and the other one will only activate one of them so unsaturated fats will only activate one PKC so that means that there's greater phosphorylation of IRS it also what else it also does is it phosphorylates or inactivates the insulin receptor and it also inactivates downstream molecules that IRS will activate so in three different ways it's inactivating it's, it's creating these these hiccups so that the insulin signaling can't uh, continue throughout the cell. All right, so we're getting some divergence between those, those two uh, fats. Now, now they wanted to look at IRS. So w- what about the total levels of IRS? Are, are the protein levels increased or decreased? And it seems like they are not changed. There are no changes in IRS levels. However, the inactivation of IRS, the more phosphorylation likely through PKC, which is known as a serine phosphorylation in this situation, there's greater levels with both fats. So both fats, just like, just as consistent with the other data of increased PKC activity, there's also greater inactivity of IRS, which all falls in line with what we're seeing with PKC. And this is with both fats. So this is one mechanism by which the insulin sensitivity is being reduced with uh, this situation. However, Now we're going to look at another mechanism that's all feeding into this is called ceramide production. Now this is something I mentioned in some of the other podcasts where you have this production through fats as well as what's known as a sphingosine molecule in combination create a ceramide. That ceramide can then gunk up the system in that it can interact with some of these molecules. It can interact with some of these proteins and inhibit the the attachment or the function of these other molecules to activate or inactivate a protein. So a great example of that would be, let's say you have, uh, I'm not saying that this necessarily happens, but if IRS were to be normally be activated, if a ceramide is, is around it or too many ceramides are around it, it could inhibit the kinase, the protein from binding and Activating it because of just what's known as steric hindrance, for example, or uh, biochemical hindrance. Or like the point is that it inhibits the function of those proteins. So, what do we find? Well, we find that only with the saturated fat condition there was an increase in ceramides, and that was in the basal and with the clamp. So, what what do those ceramide, what additional things do those ceramides do? Well, they looked at some downstream effects of those ceramides on insulin signaling, and they looked at two more proteins. So one of them is PKC, but a different type of PKC. We already talked about two other ones. We talked about the version that was the theta and the epsilon. Now we're looking at lambda. I believe it's lambda. Don't quote me on the Greek alphabet, but I believe it's lambda. And this one is also only activated by the saturated fat not at all activated by unsaturated fat. And this PKC does not affect IRS, it doesn't affect the insulin receptor, it doesn't affect uh, the other downstream effect uh, proteins of IRS like the other ones did, but this one actually inactivates AKT, so it will add a phosphate to AKT, which remember is the one that is the master protein that allows uh, blood sugar into the cells, and it will inactivate AKT, and this then leads to a reduction in AKT, I guess, function in in a manner of speaking. So it will affect metabolism overall through reductions in the uh, allowance of blood sugar into the cells. So that's one thing, PKC is more active in that situation. The second protein, that they also looked at was a phosphatase. So PKCs are all kinases, meaning they add phosphates and they're, they're inhibiting. But this phosphatase, what it does is it will take an activating phosphate tag that's on AKT and will remove it. So not only are we adding a, a phosphate that is inhibiting AKT, we're also removing a phosphate that would normally activate AKT. So it's a you know double whammy in that situation. What do we find? We find that only the saturated fat condition increased the activation, or I should say, the inactivation of, well, maybe I shouldn't say that quite yet, I'm kind of spoiling it for the, for the last piece of uh, data, but that only the saturated fat condition increased the phosphatase activity or phosphatase levels. Now, I can say that what I sort of spoiled is they wanted to finally, of course, confirm this measure in AKT, and they found that the total AKT levels were not different between conditions. So, all conditions had the same levels of AKT protein in the cells. However, the phosphorylation, the activation of AKT was indeed reduced by this, by most likely, many of these functions, at least one of them, uh, reducing the effect in saturated fat. However, that was not seen with the unsaturated fat condition. So this is great evidence at this point that the unsaturated fat may have some insulin insensitivity situation but it goes through one mechanism that is also shared by saturated fat, but saturated fat has all these other mechanisms as well that add on top of it to inactivate insulin signaling. And what would have been nice is if they'd taken some of those cells, those muscle cells from humans, and plated them onto a cell culture plate and then done some glucose measures to see how much of that uh, blood sugar ends up, or some of that sugar in the media the liquid around the cells gets taken up by the, the cells. That would have been really cool. Um, unfortunately, it didn't do that, but they stopped it at the, the AKT measures. But still, I, th- I think that would have been really cool. Okay, so my conservative conclusion with this, removing as much of my own uh, speculations is that fat-heavy foods, or consumption in general, reduce insulin sensitivity in humans, with saturated fat-heavy foods having a more pronounced effect, likely mediated through multiple signaling mechanisms that are not shared completely by unsaturated fat consumption, which is what I was talking about earlier. That you have one mechanism that they identified for unsaturated fat, which also was sat- which was also there for saturated, and then you had these two other mechanisms for saturated as well. Now, there, there's definitely more nuance that has to go into this, but I think that nuance is most likely, this is where I'm speculating now, that nuance I think comes more in for unsaturated fats because we're seeing more and more consistently that saturated fats seem to not be great for insulin sensitivity. And this is in human data. Uh, so this is likely highly applicable to you. Uh, now, granted, people could critique and say well sure but they're looking at oil consumption uh what happens if i eat a whole meal or you know th- this is only a short time period of you know 7 hours you're not looking at uh days or weeks or months or years and like sure but you can't expect a study to 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 just cover everything like literally everything i mean you'd be working on that for years and years and years and that's why we have individual studies so you break up that information over time and you can investigate it over time but still i also think about that think about these effects are persisting for six seven eight hours okay like what are the odds that you're just going to consume one meal for that day and you're not gonna be consuming, you know, two or three meals. Even but even if you were, say, one of the, one of those individuals that only eats one meal a day, which I sometimes do myself, if you consume one meal a day and it and it has I'm sure it has much more fat in it than than what they consumed, because they didn't consume a whole lot. They consumed a, I forgot the exact amount. It was like hundred something milliliters of of this liquid. Let me see if I can quick find it. But most likely, almost definitely, whatever you end up consuming, it's going to be substantially, okay, so they drank 80 or 92 grams. So that that is dependent on uh, how much they weighed. So I'm assuming more of the men ate or drank this uh, lipid drink a little bit, Uh, More So the 92 and the women probably consume more of the the 80 grams. So so that's a decent amount of fat. But that, you know, if you're consuming uh, all of your fat in one meal or if you're on a ketogenic diet or, you know, whatever it might be, it probably behoove you, and we've seen this from other data as well that I've covered over the last year, that the unsaturated uh, a ketogenic diet in an unsaturated fat condition seems to help in all these different markers. That I'm still deciding if they're if they're negative or, or positive, but I think kind of kind of traditionally they're seen as negative, like LDL cholesterol, uh, oxidized level of LDL cholesterol. Uh, total cholesterol, things like that, which certainly there are arguments uh, that are against it, I haven't made up my mind. But the point being that there are divergent effects between unsaturated fats and saturated fats. And I I would not at all be surprised is if you continuously consumed a high fat diet or a diet that's high in saturated fats every single day, if this short term effect of seven to eight hours if you do that every single day, I mean, what do you expect? What what do you think is gonna happen? Uh, we don't know for certain based off of this study, but I mean, I would certainly, I would bet my money that you're going to start having insulin insensitivity. You're gonna have more insulin resistance if you continuously consume a saturated fat diet. Now, don't get me wrong. I still eat saturated fat because it's good. Like I still like uh, to, to eat uh, bacon and eggs and all. I mean, I eat a balanced diet. So yes, I consume saturated fat. I'm not saying that uh, you, you're going to immediately be unhealthy if you eat saturated fat. Uh, but So in a way, like consider me a hypocrite. I don't, I don't care. It, it's just the reality of like, I want to enjoy my life. So I'm still going to eat saturated fat but am I gonna be more cognizant of it? Like if you just do that, if you're just more cognizant of it, that may be enough to to preserve you of like any ill effects of saturated fat. And I'm not walking away from this saying, I'm 100% convinced unsaturated fat is the worst thing in the world. I'm not saying that yet, but so far I have read study after study after study. I've read for ketogenic diets, I've read for, well for the ketogenic diets, I've read like, I don't know, 13, 14 studies plus a meta-analysis of 100 plus studies. And then for this, I, I've, I still have a lot of other studies that I have yet to cover. Um, and it's, it's, it's remarkable how consistent they are that saturated fats just always seem to be negative for all kinds of different health markers. So I try to be as conservative as I possibly can when I make, you know, these these broad statements. But my philosophy as as many other sci- many scientists, other I guess I still am a scientist, I'm still in the lab, um as many other scientists would say is that if the body of literature is heading one direction, like what what are the what are the odds that hundreds of studies are wrong? All these researchers are are just completely wrong about this one aspect uh, the odds are just monumentally low so as I keep reading the studies myself I'm just going to put point more and more towards one direction or another and uh, certainly there are studies that show that you know there's inconsistencies with saturated fat I've, I've I've uh, read a little bit of summaries and whatnot. I need to look into those studies myself where saturated fats didn't have any negative effects. Uh, But by and large, it does seem like unsaturated fats, if you're going to consume fat, have been just better. No matter, like, point stop. Like, no matter what, it just seems like it's better. So I'll get off my my high horse, my my rant, uh, my soapbox, and I'll leave it there, but... uh, and even though before I'm always like cautious, I say, hey, we can't take anything away from this and say, oh, for sure, uh, about anything, this is in humans. And I think that we can take away some information, at least start to turn our, our mindset in general to be like, okay, well, maybe we need to investigate this further to understand it even more. Um, and it seems like saturated fats just aren't, aren't the way to go. Okay. Hopefully this was informative for you and you'll have to excuse my uh, my, my uh, constant missteps sometimes when I'm saying like uh, insulin disposal or something along those lines. I've been talking about this now for like four hours straight recording, recording, recording. So uh, I hope you have a great day and I'll catch you next week. See ya.